All right, so I've got the team at Rakavina joining me today. Uh, Rakavina trades on the TSX Venture. Uh, can everyone just sort of, we'll start with Mads, and then if everyone can give uh, an intro of themselves, their title, and what they do with the company. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Um, I'm Matt Stalgart. Um, I am the president and CSO of, uh, of Rakovina Therapeutics, um, and I'm also a professor at UBC. Jeffrey? Hey, everybody. This uh, is Jeffrey Bacha. I'm the executive chairman and co-founder of the company, and uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Awesome. Art? Uh, hi, I'm Art Chertusov. I'm professor of medicine at University of British Columbia and Canada Research Chair in Precision Cancer Drug Discovery. And I'm on a scientific advisory board for Racolina. And lastly, David. I think we may have temporarily lost David, but um, David Hyman is our uh, chief financial officer. I, I can see him on the line here, but uh, I'm sure he'll jump back in here shortly. Okay, I'll just give him a second. Where's everybody located today? Well, I'm located in Vancouver. Um. David Hunter, I'm the CFO of Rakavina. I've uh, been uh, the CFO since the company was founded three years ago. And uh, like Jeff, happy to, uh, to be here today to talk about some uh, exciting things happening at the company. Awesome, guys. Well, since we're all here, um, thanks for, for doing this. And uh, I'm going to start with, a, with a, just an overall capital markets update. I think it's been... Uh, four months now, if I was to think off the top of my head, since we, we, we did our first uh, space, has there been any change at all with the uh, outstanding shares of the company or has any insiders bought or sold any stock? Um, this, this is Jeff. Um, generally, the, the, the outstanding shares uh, are the same as what we had before, just under 70 million. Um, and uh, yes, I think you can see some steady reports of some insider buying. Um, which is pretty common with us. The uh, insider position, according to Yahoo, uh, as far as steady filers, is about forty-five percent. Um, but if we, you know, start counting folks that are not steady filers that are closer to the very close to the company, um, I think that we would consider the the closely held and, and quasi insider position to be closer to about seventy percent. Okay, great. Um, has the company done any financings at all since we spoke? Um, we we have not raised additional capital. The last uh, round that we did was an insider-led round, um, which was last summer, um, early summer, uh, with a uh, convertible debenture that um, you know brought in about twelve months worth of uh, working capital for us, and um, it was really you know great to see the support of not only the you know also the involved in the management of the company, but uh, also you know other directors and 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 uh, you know. Uh, very supportive shareholders that are we would consider to be those quasi insiders that are um, you know um, yeah, had been big supporters and and the round was just a short few people and uh, got it done very quickly so it was great to see that support and uh, looking forward to seeing the the story continue to evolve from there. And how much working capital does the company have right now? 
So when we closed that round, um, we we had about twelve months of working capital. So you know that, like I said, that was early summer last year. So um, you know that says that uh, you know it's it's time for us to start thinking about next steps in the capital markets and and obviously the progress that we're making in the lab um, is an important component of that. Okay. All right. Um, so as we uh, we get into it here, um, just wanted to remind the audience that. If you uh, you know, please follow the, the their company's um, X account. Uh, they they put their updates there. Any of the speakers, if you like what they have to say, you know, please give them a follow. Obviously, I'm sure they share their company news, so that's a great way to follow the story. Um, so, why don't we um, start getting into the into this here? I'm going to lead off with Matt's, uh, and can you kind of sort of. Bring us up to speed on the DDR drug discovery process. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Um, well, I want to say that, I mean, a tremendous amount of data has been developed over the past two decades, not not only by us, but I mean, by, by worldwide society um, that has vastly qualified the DDR system or the DNA damage response system as a very attractive target in in cancer in general. Um, There's a large amount of validated data on cellular mechanisms and how that that works and um, and multiple cellular proteins and components have been described as targets in this process here. So Many tumors have problems in their uh, DNA repair machinery, and and that makes them largely vulnerable to uh, different types of designer drugs that target other components of of DNA repair. And that process is called synthetic lethality. So it's really a process where you take advantage of uh, the misfortune of DNA repair in, in tumors and and apply a, an additional compound that will then be synthetically lethal uh, for the tumor cells in that context. Um, so there are four POP inhibitors. Uh, POP is one of the enzymes that are targeted in the DDR response. There are four inhibitors approved right now by FDA. But uh, there's a number of new generation inhibitors already in the pipeline um, for multiple different companies. Uh, they are in various stages of preclinical and clinical testing at the moment. Um, there is also a number of other targets currently being explored in the DDR space, uh, for example, ATR or V1. That's two other targets that are, that are very popular at the moment. Um, and Rakovina Therapeutics, we are we kind of in the middle of this um, this uh, whole space, uh, focusing on on one hand improving capabilities of of uh, pop inhibition, for example, uh, by improving uh, brain penetration of these molecules. Uh, that's one of the shortcomings of the current generations of of these these kind of drugs but we're also trying to find new ways to create synthetic lethality in tumors uh, simultaneously by simultaneously inhibiting other enzymes than pop involved in dna repair and and our focus there uh, has for the past year been on 
inhibiting another enzyme called HDAC at the same time as inhibiting PARP. So we can do that uh, with our creative drug design and putting those two capabilities into one single molecule. Um, the benefit of that is uh, that then you only have one you know, substance to, to deal with. So when you, when you put that into a human, then you will not have to deal with potential different uh, PK at half times in, in serum or, or potential overlapping toxicities. That's really the benefit of having one single molecule with multiple um, capabilities. So, um, so that has really been our, our great focus over, over the past year. And, uh, you know, nowadays, um, you can, you can, uh, we can both improve the effect of PARP inhibition, but we can also potentially expand the uh, patient populations beyond where PARP inhibitors are currently deployed by, by exploring these uh, synthetic lethality uh, options uh, that that lies in, in in dual inhibition of of pop and HDAC enzymes. So, um, and you know the the methods of of drug development uh, is is traditionally a, a trial and error kind of approach, where where you engage in an in an iterative process of of molecular design, and then you have to do functional testing of it, and and that that's very time consuming. Uh, that's very time consuming. So. Approach that that we are taking on now in Rakovina is uh, basically uh, leveraging a very recent advance uh, advances in in artificial intelligence that uh, we can deploy to to help us design and select drug candidates that uh, that can significantly shorten that time uh, for for lead compound selection and therefore also the path to clinical testing and um, that's where I'm yeah yeah go ahead. I was going to say that seems like a good spot to bring art into the conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, in, in this uh, this discovery process, the DDR, how long has how long have have you guys had that process? It's it's very new that we uh, decided to implement uh, the uh, AI component in this, um, and it, it was really because of um, the opportunity is is ripe right now for this in the DDR space. Uh, you have a situation where uh, there's so much information out um, uh, with the DDR targets. Uh, that uh, is required for the AI to perform uh, well. I mean, art can speak more to that, but it's really uh, a matter of of having um, uh, the data available uh, to uh, to train the AI so so that we can we can get uh, these very improved outcomes out of it. Okay. All right, why don't, you, why don't we bring you into the conversation here and maybe you can sort of bring us up to speed and when you, you know, the AI involved in this tech, technology and how long you've been, you know, involved with it. Sure. So um, I was involved in this field, I would call it computational drug discovery from the very beginning, in fact. So I started essentially using computers to digitize chemistry and biology more than 20 years ago. I was one of the early adopters of that. And uh, from very early on, when 
naturally bring computers into anything, things get revolutionized and improved. So the drug discovery with help of computers evolved very long way from just empirical experiments when people would just try everything in the lab, uh, hoping to find something which may start looking like a drug. And success rate of such high throughput screening campaigns would be 100 of 1%, something close to that. Then using computers, we would start simulating things in, in virtual reality and then trying it at the lab. So success rate went to anywhere from 10 to 20% from the first take, which is dramatic improvement. And so computational drug discovery slowly but surely became mainstream. So now we try to compute a lot before it's tried in the wet lab. Moreover, the problems become more complex and as we unlayer the biology of drug action. And so computers as a data-driven uh, paradigm will really be the main tool here. And uh, it became really AI in the last few years. I'd say it coincided with a COVID outbreak when a public demanded better drugs and new drugs fast. And so fortunately, it just happened that AI achieved the maturity state at about the same time, 2015, 2017, roughly. And so drug discovery became not just computationally driven, but AI driven. And so I was also on the forefront of that. And we wrote some big review papers and published some big uh, research papers on COVID and, and, and AI and drug discovery. So essentially now it's a point of conversion of computers, computer power, uh, AI, and drug discovery, biology, and uh, in fact, patient results and patient data. So when I don't convert this into sort of new, powerful um, approach paradigm, AI-driven drug discovery, it's very multifaceted. So um, again, there are many aspects of it, but essentially AI can help every possible uh, factor every possible aspect of computational drug discovery. And one of the most important implications of that, that AI really don't makes things not just faster, it makes things more accurate and more reliable, and it de-risks, in a way, uh, the drug discovery process, the R&D efforts. Because unlike many other areas of human activity, where things with time become cheaper, like computers or communication or anything else progressive, drug discovery unfortunately, becomes more and more expensive. So the latest figures are such as that you need $6 billion to develop one new drug end-to-end. -end. And this is clearly not a good trend because, you know, it cannot go up. The price cannot go up forever. And the expectation is that AI, in fact, can de-risk the drug discovery process, uh, can reduce the uh, chances of failure, and so naturally will drive the drug discovery R&D costs down to something much more manageable. Because again, the big uh, component, the main component of that $6 billion figure is that they fail in clinical trials. So you invest hundreds of millions of dollars in developing drugs, and then something goes wrong in, in patients. And so all these efforts wasted, and cumulatively that drives the R&D cost so high. So AI can take care of that in a way because now we can start computing more and more and more and we start predicting more and more and more properties such as blood, brain, beer, Matt's just mentioned. So in fact, we can compute these things into drug uh, before we make a drug. 
And so that will ensure that, you know, the drug will more likely make it and uh, the cost will go down. So again, this is a very big picture, but again, AI and drug discovery is a very big concept. Uh, again, I'll be more than happy to dissect it into something more uh, manageable and something more relevant to PARP and HDAC inhibitors. But essentially, one just needs to know this is now the state of the art. So AI is very much integrated into drug discovery process, into drug optimization process, and it's taking over as much as possible, including, again, results from clinical trials. Can you give us more of a layman's terms example of, of AI and the DDR process? Um, you know, and, and maybe if you're just talking to someone who doesn't understand anything of what you're saying, um, the biggest benefit, and is there any drawback? Um, well, I guess the drawback, there's always is, um, I guess, when people think they can use AI and drug discovery, and a lot of people rushing into the field because it's now a hot topic. So a lot of people rushing into what they would call AI-driven drug discovery, problem is without actual experience in drug discovery. So you see a lot of people, you know, skilled in computation, they think it's just one of other things they can do because they've been successful in, you know, AI-driven text recognition or uh, marketing or whatever. And so now they jump into drug discovery. So that's the drawback right now. I see that, you know, there is a lot of fashion-driven uh, approaches right now. But when you do it right, when you actually use AI as a tool rather than you know, magic answer to everything, uh, when you use AI just to do the, what you, you've been doing before but better, then it's a very powerful thing. In terms of you know, DDR inhibitors, I'll give you an example. So previously, drugs would be developed to work on one target and not to work on some anti-target, what we would call so some toxicity targets or some proteins you don't want to touch because they are essential. So, uh, and that's a traditional approach. So to hit, to really, to hit two targets, two proteins, you would need two drugs. And that's the conventional approach. And those combinations work great. You know, there is no secret that, for instance, in the antiviral world, people use those cocktails. The same concept now expands to every other disease in a way. So when you hit multiple points in the disease, the effect is much better than just hit one critical point. And uh, you use multiple drugs to do that, the combo. And each drug has own drawbacks. Each drug may have you know, side effects which are enhanced by other drugs. Uh, drug Two drugs can have synergetic side effects on and on and on. So it's very difficult to so basically, probability of success goes down. Very difficult to expect everything will be fine. But with AI, you can model in all those things in your compound you're making before you even made it. So as I said, we can compute a lot of things in virtual reality before we bring them into web lab. So I can say, okay, I want to hit target one, target two, and do not hit these 200 targets which are toxicity-related. This way, in terms of DDR, for instance, problem, we can develop drug which hits in the same time PARP and HDAC, Mats was mentioning, and it will be dual action molecule. While right now, the state of the art, you have to use combination of two drugs. And again, the consequences of that combination are not predictable pretty much. 
Can you you mentioned COVID um, and a and and the AI sort of started coming into this um, in around 2015 2016. So, how was uh, can you kind of elaborate again to the layman how AI AI was kind of used with with the COVID outbreak? Sure. So I should say that right now for the last what 15 years I work in the cancer research. But before that, for seven years, I was, in fact, infectious disease professor. So I started developing some early antivirals and antimicrobials in the early days of my career. And so when uh, SARS-2, when COVID unfolded, very early I realized that that's going to be a problem. And so at the time, we, we, already, we just built the AI prototype for finding drug, uh, new drugs for new diseases. And so we used that AI approach we've developed, which is called deep docking, and we screened 1 billion molecules against uh, COVID main target, main protein, main protease. And it took us just three weeks to run billion molecules in silico uh, against the COVID. And so we published, we identified 1,000 compounds, which look like prototypes, could be a drug against COVID. And we published them in the journal. And the publication went out, in fact, March 11, 2020, the very day the pandemic was called. So people just had the flash news all over the world that there is pandemics. While we already published 1,000 molecules, which could be starting point for drug design. And in fact, a lot of groups around the world took our compounds and successfully developed them into drug prototypes later. So basically, using AI, we were able to, within one month, we already give some some ideas, some hope for scientists to develop drugs. So that was the very first indication of the power of AI in early drug discovery, not to mention it was first ever campaign when people dealt with 1,000, 1 billion molecules. So that size of a library no one ever could approach. And of course, now it's a state of the art. Now we're dealing with trillion molecule libraries a few years later. I mean, that's pretty pretty intense, uh stuff there i i think it's a little bit hard for the average person to follow uh to follow along so i'm doing my best like i really would like to kind of break this down you know for for the average person that likes to you know invest into bio biotech and in and this stuff um why don't we bring mads back into the the, the conversation here um um the DDR process and AI, you, you had mentioned that there's other people trying to use this right now. Um, some people might not know what they're doing. Uh, what, what can investors be, how can they be assured that, you know, your team, uh, you know, is the right team to, to combine these two? Obviously, Art, you're, you're, you're the main focus of that. Um, but what, you know, what else does the company have to say about, you know, you guys being the right team to use this? Hello. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Okay. <laughs> I'll start from the top. Sorry, Carl. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I what I said was that um, <clears throat> this really uh, is a matter of of the team and and how you you are able how you're set up to to really drive this forward. As Art uh, mentioned earlier, you need this 
uh, unique combination of, of both people that, that knows about AI, but you also need people that have experience in drug development. And in our case, you also need this very deep insight into DNA damage and how cells repair DNA to really, uh, to really be successful in that. And I think that's where Rakovina is, is extremely well set up uh, for this. We, uh, we have the, the year long expertise in, in uh, in both drug development on the team, and we also have the the expertise on on DNA repair from a from all the way from basic research uh, kind of angle to to applied uh, uh, drug development research angle on 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 these DDR inhibitors. So so this unique constellation is really where where we we are set off for success. Okay, Art, do you have anything to add to that? No, basically, yeah, again, it's, I'm trying to, to, to reduce it to something more, <laughs> I guess, manageable. Uh, yeah, essentially, in fact, AI and drug discovery is a generic tool, right? So we can apply AI to any drug discovery, like we did for COVID, or we can do for DDR, on and on and on. So it's always a synergy with people who know the biology of the disease, they know the underlying mechanism of the disease that we have to work with. And so when you join two forces, when you have people coming from AI with the tools and people working you know, on the ground with specific biology, knowing everything about it, that's when things really start you know, moving, moving ahead at a new pace. That's when you have qualitative change in things. And that's what we have here. So uh, here at University of British Columbia, we have exactly these kind of expertises working together for years. Okay. Um, Mr. Jeff, I've got a question for you here, sir. Sure. How can, how can AI make the drug, the DDR, and lead optimization more efficient and predictable with prescribed timelines and milestones? If you can get into that. That would be uh... sure. I mean, and this this is one of the things that the the entire you know in silico screening and, the, and its power really I think creates great benefit in terms of you know creating a manageable and predictable process. As Mads described, you know traditional drug discovery and lead optimization is is a you know, iterative um, process where you know you make a handful of molecules, you test them you hopefully are heading in the right direction toward having that clinical candidate. You learn something, the chemists redesign it, you go through that process again. And, you know, when somebody says, well, when are you going to have that lead molecule? And the answer is, well, we'll, we'll have it when we have it. And it's, it's very hard to predict. It's usually, you know, on the order of, you know, two to three years um, from start to finish before you're, you're there. Um, and, you know, bringing AI into the table you know, it almost creates almost like a, a mining analogy where um, you, know, you have your real estate of interest. So in this case, a drug target um, you know, in a DDR, that would be PARP or ATR and ATM, things like that. Um, but we can find exactly when we're going to dig into that real estate, when we're going to drill in and, and uh, into that geography. And we can also know that a certain number of weeks in the future, you're going to pull out um, the, the interesting samples um, and have them in hand. Very predictable, where um, very robust because in that number of weeks, rather than uh, you know, traditional drug discovery and lead optimization, 
you know, designing and screening hundreds or thousands of compounds over a few years, you're literally taking a look at billions of compounds in just a few weeks. And so being able to, to manage that in a, in a predictable way, because you know how long that algorithm is going to take to work, um, you know, just really creates a, a shorter manageable timeline, significantly reduces uh, overall costs and reduces risk too, because you're going out of such a large scope in terms of billions of, of candidates rather than hundreds or thousands. So, you know, that, that makes this a very attractive tool that I think over the next, uh, you know, little while it's going to begin to be game changing in drug discovery and really change the, the cancer treatment landscape as we go forward. So I, I got a question here uh, that came in via DM and people are trying to, I guess, coordinate the timeline of, you know, catalysts for the companies and for the company, sorry, and in uh, your next raise, because obviously you're going to need money in the next, say, four months or six months. Um, what can people expect uh, for news flow with the company? Well, I think that... Um you know, we're, we're talking around a number of potential collaborations that uh, will certainly be, uh, we think, very exciting and announceable, um, as well as continued progress and presentations at major scientific meetings uh, about what's been, been happening in the lead program from the KT3000 series. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very pleased with the progress that's been made uh, in the labs that uh, have been established in collaboration with the University of Columbia. And this really creates a, you know, very robust infrastructure for um, validating the types of things that can come out of an AI effort. Yeah. Has there been any, um, you know, big pharma companies, biotech companies that have seen significant, um, you know, increases in their stock off of AI announcements? And I'm just trying to show the audience, right? Like the people that are buying that are potentially going to buy this stock, um, and they're going to be looking at the blue sky potential, right? Um, and AI is is having a big impact in the world right now. And we're seeing that with valuations of various different companies. Um, we don't even have to list them. Everybody knows who they are, right? So w- what's your guys' take? So, you know, drug development companies build value by developing drugs and having the best tools at your disposable to minimize the risk, reduce the timelines, reduce cost, uh, and Getting those good candidates um, are, you know, that is what's going to drive value. Um, a great example of of AI is um, Pfizer's uh, Paxlovid. If you look at that, um, which was a granted accelerated approval um, about eleven months after the original publication of um, of the uh, the COVID. Uh, lead candidates that Art was talking about. And, you know, look at the literature behind Paxlovid. That was a very much an AI-driven product. Um, and from the beginning of that, the pandemic, the beginning of the screening effort uh, to have a approved drug in less than a year, that created huge value for that company. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't know that Pfizer's stock went up because they used AI, but because they had a good drug that the world needs and that's going to make a difference for patients, that drives, drives a lot of value. And you know, Arachvina Therapeutics and all of the other companies that are similar to us in drug development, getting those new treatments in the hands of doctors to impact patient lives is the critical value driver. And AI will become a very valuable tool 
in speeding up that process, making it more predictable, reducing cost and uh, uh, and improving outcomes. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to remind our audience today, um, you know, if you if you like what you're hearing from the company and any of the speakers, please make sure to give them a follow on their social media accounts. Uh, they all, I'm sure, will share the news. Um, of, of course, the corporate handle will, Rakavina. I would highly suggest everybody follow that one. Um, is there anything that's pressing going on with the company or in this space in general that we can have a discussion around right now, guys? I think, I think Art, um, maybe you can, can uh, share some insights and some things that you're seeing around drug development in general, um, not just in the, in the cancer space or in the, in the DDR space, but you know, I know that you've got uh, a lot of relationships that um, you, know, you might be able to, to share with the audience. Yeah, basically, I already briefly mentioned that AI becomes the, you know, the go-to tool in drug discovery because it gives you a lot of answers previously people couldn't dream of getting. So in a way, drug discovery uh, is like a um, process when you juggle a lot of balls and as you progress, the number of them increases uh, to simplify so your drugs will be active and you can take care of that. Next thing you know, then it shows some I mean, drug prototype, it shows some toxicity. You change the chemical structure, it's less toxic, but then it's not stable. You fix the stability, then it sticks to the liver. You fix that. And so basically, it's like a snowball. As you go through the process, you fix one thing, something else comes up. And previously, this approach sort of on and on trial and effort would take a lot of resources and times. And in fact, wouldn't guarantee that the drug is going to make it because later on, something else will come up. So... People have a lot of hope for AI because AI solves exactly this problem. So you kind of dial in before you even make a model. You dial in all the properties you want to see. It's not like you fix it one at a time. You, you put them all on a map and then you cook a molecule in, in silica first, which should satisfy all those criteria. It's not like you fix it one at a time. You fix them all at once. And AI would be running computing, will be inventing the molecule, which will be satisfying all those predefined criteria. And when something comes out of AI engine, it has pretty good chances of satisfying everything drug discoverer wants to, wants to have. So that's why, again, the merger between AI and drug discovery, it's such a natural fit. That's why there is so much interest because this seems like a perfect sort of marriage of two technologies. And that's what we are on the forefront of that. So it's very new, very early. Again, uh, I was involved in computation drug discovery for decades and in AI and drug discovery from very early days. And now we're really trying to invest our effort and time into making those AI tools uh, more and more accurate and more and more useful. Um, David, did you want to come into the discussion? Do you have anything to add? Or Mark, do you have any questions? Carl, sorry, just a little slow on the, the mute button. Um, yeah, no, the only thing I would add from a, I mean, it's a very scientific discussion, obviously, and uh, I'm a, have a financial background by, by trade, so I'm uh, always fascinated and interested by the science, but I'm always looking at the, uh, the financial angle of it uh, to some extent. The one thing that excites me about the, uh, the AI partnership, especially as it applies to, to Rack Avena, is 
as Art has said many times, AI is a tool, it's a machine, and without data to, to put into the machine, there's nothing for it to, uh, there, there's nothing for it to work with. And as, as Mads also alluded to, the, uh, the sheer amount of data that exists in the DDR space, I believe makes it very ripe for, uh, for opportunity for this, for this application. So um, we're very excited to, to get to work and, and, and see what the machine will, uh, will, will turn out. And, um, and it's always exciting to be at the, the forefront of new technologies and, and uh, be able to participate in their application of these uh, very exciting opportunities. Does anyone want to come up as a speaker? Mark, I sent you an invite there. Um, anyone have any questions? Please, please DM me. I'm just going to check out my DMs here. I always get capital markets questions here, gentlemen. Um, there, someone's wondering combined uh, how much, what percentage of the float does ownership own? We probably covered this on our first base, but that's probably a new listener. And is can anyone uh, answer that? Sure. Um, this is Jeff again. So, yeah, we covered this a little bit right at the beginning of the call. I think um, in terms of the the SETI filers and which is generally management and and the board. Um, you know, that, that reported ownership is about 45% um, of, the, of the outstanding shares. And um, then beyond that, um, you know, folks that we consider to be you know, close shareholders of the company uh, who have significant positions um, and have been very regular buyers in the market uh, alongside of the insiders, um, that would take that number up to uh, around the order of 70%, we would consider to be closely held of the outstanding shares. Okay. Uh, another question was if you have any institutional support at this point. So the the company, when we founded the company and, and uh, took it, uh, listed the company through the CPC, and those are you know, by and large uh, you know, retail type of transaction. So the, the float is, is certainly largely retail held. Uh, we would consider uh, a couple of the offices that are shareholders of the company in very significant size in terms of um, their overall uh, capitalization to be very institution-like. Um, and, and that would be a, a reasonable percentage of, of, the, uh, of that sort of close friends, uh, close insiders, uh, that takes us between, uh, you know, 45 to 70%. So that, that 35% uh, is, is, is a big chunk of that is uh, certainly, uh, um, you know, what I would consider to be institutionally held. Okay. Again, I'm just going to take the time. I see there's somewhere around 800, 900 people listening. Uh, if you like what you're hearing from the company, I, I do encourage you to all follow the uh, Rakavina handle. Um, you can give thumbs up to people. You can like everybody, all the speakers' handles and follow them for news. Um, Art, I just want to, uh, you know, because it seems like some more people came in here over the last uh, 50 minutes. If you can just go over your background again um, and just talk about how long you've been involved with AI. Again, my background is computational chemistry, and so I'm a professor of University of British Columbia for the last 21 years. And I started using compute computing in, in to solve biological problems and chemical problems more than 20 years ago. So we started with very basic use of algorithms 
to help wet lab people, to help experiments to be successful. Because traditional drug discovery was relying on just experimental screening of potential drug candidates. People would take typically some natural products or some chemicals they could reach out and get and try them to use in biology to see how they work on infection disease, infection or cancer, on and on and on. So hoping that by, by chance, really, something will start working and then you can improve that molecule. So this trial and error approach, just pure wet lab approach, as we call it, was hugely unsuccessful. So the success rate was, again, below 0.1%. So we started using computers early on to see what we can compute this uh, scenarios. What if we can predict using in silica approaches, which molecule we should look at for addressing certain problems. And uh, it worked. And it made uh, the drug discovery process very digitalized, computerized. And computers and drug discovery after, you know, after early 2000 uh, started working, developing hand-to-hand. And naturally, this computational drug discovery became AI drug discovery a few years ago when computers reached the state of the art for proper AI, when AI algorithms emerged, when a lot of data emerged. And so now AI-driven drug discovery is very much uh, becoming the state of the art. Because AI and drug discovery are two very natural, naturally synergetic approaches. Because uh, drug discovery is what we call multi-parameter optimization type of science. When you want your molecule to do a lot of things at the same time, and also you want your molecule not to do a lot of things at the same time. So your ideal drug is a chemical which satisfies hundreds of different criteria. It should be active, yet shouldn't be toxic. It should be able to work as a pill because no one wants, you know, intravenous injection or something like that. Yet it shouldn't stay in the body too long and on and on and on and on. So a lot of do's and a lot of don'ts. And when you try to fix all this criteria, you want, you want to satisfy all this criteria just by fixing one criteria at the time. It's a very difficult and very expensive process. So develop new drug is a very expensive and long avenue. While with AI, you can predefine all these properties when you cook your molecule in silico. You really don't make it uh, in the real world. You don't really synthesize it up until you're happy with the prediction. And you just predefine, dial in all those properties in your AI engine. You say, I want a molecule which, say, hits this particular disease target, such as PARP or HDAC. And in the same talking, it's stable and it's not toxic and it's soluble and on and on and on. You set up all those criteria and then you just basically push the go button and AI engine will be generating drug candidates which satisfy all of that. And only when you're happy how predictions look like, then you make that molecule and then you test that in the real world. So basically that de-risks the drug discovery process tremendously. That saves a lot of time and effort and experiments and chemistry, and hope is that will basically increase chances of drug making through all the clinical trials and making to the bench side. So that's why, again, AI and drug discovery is becoming such a hot topic. It's a very new and fresh topic, uh, even though, again, the basic science behind that, the computational drug discovery, has been developed for a couple of decades at least. So that's in very sort of high-level view. Okay. 
Can you talk a little bit about how AI helped uh, with the biggest licensing deal in UBC history? It's been um, years ago, it was like in, 20, in 2010 or something, we started one of the new drug discovery projects. And it was against uh, prostate cancer. So our main focus was a prostate cancer at the time. And we started looking at some targets in prostate cancer, which people wouldn't touch before, wouldn't approach before. So we look at the particular drug target, which was considered, quote unquote, undruggable, even though it seemed like a very attractive uh, thing to try. But when you do things in a sort of experimental wet lab manner, as like mentioned, trial and error manner, there is very small chance that you're going to find something which would target that protein. And people basically wouldn't even touch it because it seemed unconventional. So, but we used computational approach. We said, what if we try to create something in virtual world, which nonetheless might work against that target? And that's what we did. So we ran at the time 5 million molecules against that target in computers. And we found few which seemed to supposed to work. So by all calculations, it was a goal. So we made those molecules, we tested them, and they did work, in fact. And uh, that's first time ever we started publishing papers on that particular new approach, that particular new target. And it was a fascinating new concept because, again, for decades, people have been looking at that particular protein and couldn't do anything about it. And so that's when Roche came in and a few other players, in fact. And uh, A, they really liked the drug prototype. But B, more importantly, they really like the platform. They like that idea you can take something which people wouldn't touch for decades, even though wanted to. And using computers, you can develop pretty good-looking drug candidates. So that's when UBC struck a deal with Roche, and that was the biggest licensing deal in Canadian university uh, domain at the time, and I think it still is. So, Art, what, what was your decision to get involved with Rakavina? Well, um, I work with a lot of uh, scientists in the University of British Columbia who work on drug development, and I just happen to be in the same department with Matt, uh, who is a, a leader of Rakavina, and uh, it was very natural for us. And we had a few successful collaborations in the past as well, so it was very natural for me to agree to help with uh, Rakavina projects. Because, again, we know each other for a long time, and we have a very good track record from previous projects. Okay. Um, Mark, do you have any questions here? I know you came on as a speaker. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, I, just, I think I just wanted to double-click on you know, a couple things that Art was mentioning in terms of time and money saved by using you know, AI as well as kind of computational biology to accelerate the drug discovery process. So I think he mentioned at the front end of his his talking points that, you know, they were able to take a, a library of a billion potential targets and reduce it to a thousand in three weeks. So maybe Art can just, you know, say explicitly, like, how long would that normally take if you were doing this in the traditional kind of wet lab fashion versus in silica? So in wet lab fashion, it's just impossible period. Uh, no way. <laughs> so the maximum you can run in wet lab, that's what Big Pharma would do with robots, would be one, two million molecules. And such library screen would cost several million dollars with very non-obvious success. So
So the reason, I mean, the main advantage of using AI was to really generate new type of computational chemistry. So we would benchmark us not even against WECLAB. Again, that would be billion versus million. Uh, we would benchmark us against con traditional computing without AI. And so compared to traditional computing without AI, we had 5,000 folds acceleration roughly. So give and take, we started making, doing things 5,000 times better compared to no AI, just computers. And computers compared to wet lab would be another few thousand volts, like I've mentioned. So if one would compare AI-based campaign to wet lab campaign, a billion molecules screened in one month versus what wet lab would screen one month, uh, we talk a million fold acceleration, not even thousand. Yeah, that's huge. I just I just wanted to double click on that, Carl, because I think, you know, really emphasizing that it, it is actually like about a million times improvement. Yeah, um, is is pretty mind boggling. Yeah. And we're seeing that type of stuff, uh, numbers in, in many industries with AI. It's pretty crazy, actually, how fast the world is transforming. Uh, you know, every every time you go to sleep and wake up, it's it's crazy. Uh, any follow-up there, Mark? Any any other questions? No, I think um, I think that's all. That's all on my end. I uh, really, I yeah, really appreciate the thorough discussion from from Art and Mads and Jeff uh, and the team here. Yeah, and uh, very excited about the progress these guys are making. David, anything from you, my friend? No, I think it's all it's all been said. Uh, you know. Uh, try to keep it within the hour so people can make their three o'clock uh, or whatever time zone they're in appoint appointments on the hour. But uh, appreciate everyone taking some time to listen to our story today. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the update. Um, quite a few listeners here. Again, I guess we'll leave it just, you know, if you like uh, what the company has been saying here and, and follow all the speakers and of course their corporate account, Rakavina. Um, what exchanges are you on? I know you're on the venture. You're on any other ones? Not at this time. We're traded on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol RKV. Awesome. Uh, hopefully we can get another quarterly update from you uh, in three or four months. Good luck on your financing. Good luck with all of your uh, deals that you're trying to work and partnerships you're trying to work on. I think uh, hopefully everything comes to fruition. Uh, nothing but the best in your uh, out to you guys. Uh, any final words or is that it? Well, I think just thank, thanking you for... Uh, wanting to put this together and, and hearing some of the things that, that we're excited about. And thanks to everybody for taking the time to uh, spend with us today. Awesome. We'll leave it there. All right, Rakavina, uh, add them to your stock watch. If you have any questions, you can always uh, email them directly or give them a call. And of course, give them a follow on their X account and keep, uh, keep up to date with their updates. Take care, everybody. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.